Joe is there. G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe is there. It's G.I. Joe against Cobra the enemy, fighting to save the day. He never gives up, he's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. Joe. is the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against COBRA, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. He never gives up, he'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe. Welcome to G.I. Joe Book, episode 73, where we will be following the continuing adventures of G.I. Joe as they survive the miniseries that is known as Arise, Serpento Arise. Join Rob, Paul, that's me, and Steve as we discuss episode 4 of the five-part miniseries. Let's take it away, guys. This I command. Ooh, right out the gates, I'm going to say that... Uh... Without sounding too much like a gushing fanboy, I find part four of Arise Serpento Arise to be extremely good. Normally, when we're preparing for these segments, I take a few notes here and there, things that I want to remember that uh, I'd like to bring up later in the podcast. Well, this time I went with a different approach. I sat down, put the earphones on, and immersed myself in this episode. I didn't have a pad or a pen or anything to distract me, not even a couple of Joes in my lap. I just watched this episode, and it was pretty suspenseful. I, I have to admit that, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just emotionally frail in my ripe old age, but I felt a genuine tension in this episode at a number of junctures. So, for a cartoon, a kid's cartoon, from 30 years ago, to do that to me, here, now, as of the 18th of September, 2016, that's saying a lot. Anyway, my name is Steven, and I hope you're enjoying our reviews of the miniseries Arise, Serpentor Arise. This is part four. Yeah, this is part four of Arise, Serpentor Arise. Let's make sure everyone knows it by now. Episode 4, before episode 5, and after episode 3. Fuck you guys. <laughs> it is therefore the penultimate episode, where all the pieces are being maneuvered into their final positions. And I find it quite thrilling. But, gentlemen, we do have our definitive sculpt section. And this time, we're doing something that uh, might seem pretty damn obvious since he was actually part of the 1986 figure lineup. But he's a character that has been around a lot longer than that. It is none other than the August commander of the G.I. Joe team. It's Hawk. Yay! (laughs) I'd rather have an August commander than a September one. (laughs) (laughs) Effectively, he was introduced to the cartoon series in 1986. Yes. Yeah, because uh, previously yeah. previously Duke was essentially in command. I suppose they just didn't have a nice-looking version of him. <laughs> I think it was uh, perhaps an oversight. They didn't quite catch that he was, in fact, the top-ranked G.I. Joe team member back in 1983. It's like, mm, he's just another one of those green dudes. Never mm. mind the fact that he's a colonel. 
Yeah, maybe it's that, or maybe it's just that he really does look a little. Um, he, he's too much of a poster boy for the military, if that makes sense. The original Hawk. I mean, he's blonde, blue eyed. He looks like Steve Rogers in a lot of ways. So um, maybe they didn't want to confuse Hawk and Captain America. Wasn't he blonde eyed? <laughs> blonde blonde eyed. They didn't ind- individuate his uh, eyeball color back in eighty two, eighty three. So his uh, <laughs> his eyeballs are painted with the same uh, paint tone that his hair is painted in. Okay, so he's blonde-haired, blonde-eyed. <laughs> and very un-unique. I mean, mm. he came with the MMS, he had some silver paint applications to set him apart, and the blonde hair. But all you really had to go on was the file card, which was a handsomely written file card and uh, certainly gave him a nod as both the leader and also a little bit of a... Perhaps a, a, he's coming from privilege, which is an angle that I found very interesting and something that I wish they'd played up more in the in the cartoons and comic books, that Hawk might not always have the respect of the men under him because he is a bit of a silver spoon. Mm. But he goes out and time after time earns that trust and respect. I didn't find his leadership ever being questioned, uh, which would have been an interesting plot device, one that, mm, you know, perhaps... Uh, Missed opportunity there. But I think we can categorically say that between the three of us, version one is not the definitive version of Hawk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So who will cast the first stone? Who will casting the first stone? I will take one for the team. I love Hawk. I think he's a great character and it's once again been hammered into me as to how much I really enjoy this character because I've had a really tough time finding what I would call the definitive Hawk sculpt. Although version 2, the version that is very well known in this um, miniseries, and is the Sunbow specific uh, version of Hawk, I will say that as a character design, I really love it. But the vintage figure, for me, it's lacking something. I can't quite put my finger on it, and I'm talking about version 2 here, folks. I just feel that the vintage isn't quite scratching that itch. It's a great sculpt, mind you. It's got a cool little backpack, that little, what is it, a, a 45 cal, I imagine. They're trying to make that a 45 cal, or to keep it in Hawk standard, it's probably a 50 cal, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's got a lot of great bells and whistles, and that jacket is and has always been a very cool feature of Hawk. I think what puts me off this figure a little is the helmet. It is a, a rather big helmet, and sometimes uh, I forget how old these toys are, and that sometimes they have, to ma- they have to make allowances for that. And this helmet is huge. It makes his noggin look really big. And with a character like Gridiron, I can kind of forgive it, but with a helmet that's meant to be quite snug, I can't forgive it as much. This brings us through to um, version 3. I have quite an affection for version 3 because as you guys, or as many of you out there will know, or and if you don't, now you're going to know, but uh, this is the version that is featured quite prominently in the video game, in the first G.I. Joe video game by Taxan. And when you get to use that Hawk, it's quite a treat because he can use his backpack and you can fly around the levels. So it almost feels like you're cheating. But before I even knew he was in the game, I was just like, hey, the leader of G.I. Joe has a backpack with jets. <laughs> How cool is that? Okay, And this was actually sort of messed up because version 4 of Hawk was the first Hawk I was ever actually exposed to. I don't recall in my youth ever really encountering Hawk in his um, version 2 incarnation or in his jetpack incarnation before encountering the, the talking battle commanders version 4 
And I got to say, when I saw him in packaging, I knew that this guy was supposed to be the leader. I was like, this guy is important in G.I. Joe. I, I didn't even know his name. I was like, he's general man. And then I picked up the, the card and I was like, okay, this is Hawk. This guy is really important. Him and um, Stalker must be really important for the G.I. Joe team. Upon obviously purchasing the figure, I realized that he is numero uno of G.I. Joe. And then shortly thereafter, I saw his shouting, grimaced face on the cover of the of the second G.I. Joe game, the Atlantis, Atlantis Factor. Factor. Jinx. Yeah, anyway, so that's where I saw him and I was like, okay, here's this character I've got a toy of. He's in this video game and it kind of married well for me. It's only after that that I actually played the first video game because I played them number two, then number one, etc. Anyway, so looking at these three, and I'm going to excuse the modern era incarnations, not because they're bad figures. I just find that there's so much in the vintage uh, versions of Hawk that for all the bells and whistles that the modern era figures have, they don't yet have a version 4 Hawk. And they don't have a version 3 Hawk. And to me, that's a huge loss. I've got to say, guys, and I mean, uh, it's not even so much a sculpt thing. I think it's just like uh, a preferential thing. I don't know what it is, but I just really like version 4. Talking Battle Commanders, he's a great toy. I remember having all of life's hard questions and asking, you know, Hawk for, I want to take this girl to a movie. And he's like, eat like Cobra. I'm like, good idea. Hey, should should I buy her a milkshake? Yo, Joe. Okay, cool. Yeah. I don't know if I want to go out with my friends tonight. Move out. Okay, I'm going. <laughs> you, know, you know, he had the answers to all of life's questions. This makes him one of the best figures ever. I keep fighting with my mom and dad. Move out. Move out. <laughs> <laughs> my mom's being a bitch eat that cobra <laughs> you know so he was great and he still is great and I mean I've just recently when I say recently I mean last few months a few months ago when Steve was last year we kind of rescued this General Hawk because I'd found these parts parts of him in different sort of toy boxes and and Steve sort of uh, took it upon himself to uh, replace the O-ring and then I I think I used some uh, Mr. Muscle or whatever to get some paint off him because I originally painted him. And now I've taken all the paint off and he's great. And now I have pretty much all the Hawks with the exception of Vintage V2 and the version 1, which I'm sorry, but doesn't quite hit my radar. So guys, <laughs> General uh, General Hawk or Hawk, should we say, version 4 is Paul's definitive sculpt because he is just so full of memories. Great outfit. Love the little hat. Love the glasses. I mean, he just looks like he's somebody that sounds like, hey, guys, you know, <laughs> let's go kick Cobra's ass. Yo, Joe, eat lead, Cobra. Move out. You know, that kind of thing. He's just cool. And those guns, I mean, the man's got his guns in gold, okay? <laughs> and that giant freaking, I want to say python, but it's not a python. It's, um, anyway, the big gun, the big, big handgun. That's a revolver of some kind with a scope. Yeah. It's like the size of his forearm. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's certainly pimping. I mean, the badass shades, the extreme self-tan. <laughs> and you better be packing a screwdriver because he's going to need it to get that hunking backpack off his back. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, the man needs to sit in some vehicles. Yep. And hopefully uh, vodka orange juice because that's another kind of screwdriver that he needs. <laughs> Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. He's pretty <laughs> devastating if you power him up on G.I. Joe 2, the NES cartridge game. 
I mean, he's got the best uh, attack when it comes to using the laser rifle. Yeah, you heard it on G.I. Joburg. Robbie, definitive Hawk, if you please. Well, I'm probably actually just going to go with the version 2 Hawk. He looks really cool in the cartoon series, and I remember, I think, I remember you getting him, and he was just always such a cool leader, I think. To me, he, he looks like he leads from the front, you know, he, he's not behind everyone else, he's out there in the field. And I love the camera pants and the kind of leather jacket. Um, to me, yeah, he it's looks a bomber like jacket, Hawk. technically, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's kind of like, I am a Hawk, because I come from the sky with my jacket on. <laughs> or Tomahawk as he's later known which I don't know why they renamed him but or, or was he always named Tomahawk I mean General so Tomahawk he's... Abernathy yeah uh, Tomahawk uh, or General Clayton Tomahawk Abernathy uh, yeah he's uh, I think he's codenamed uh, in my opinion if he wasn't a general and he was just released as a Joe like a like he was released as Duke I think his codename would have been Tomahawk, personally, but that's me, okay, that's that's uh, complete speculation from this member of G.I. Joe Berg, uh, and not to be taken too seriously out there in listening land. Well, regardless of what uh, trademarks or uh, legalities have governed his codename or naming over the years, I'd like to agree, at least between the three of us, that his file name is Clayton Abernathy, his codename is Hawk, and his rank is is general and you never use these three terms synchronously yes don't call him general hawk don't call him general clayton hawk abernathy fuck all that he's either a general or he's clayton abernathy or he's hawk (laughs) i find it very erroneous when you conflate a character's rank and their code name like i do not call falcon Lieutenant Falcon. I don't call Gridiron Captain Gridiron. And I most certainly yeah. don't call the leader of G.I. Joe General Hawk. From growing up in a family where, you know, your father's a ranking officer, people never call my dad by his first name, for example. Um, anybody who's served with my father has never called him by his first name. They always call him Colonel. They always call him by his rank, just alone. They never, like, call him Colonel Lobsher or... Anything, it's always Colonel. They always refer to him by his rank. So, Do you have a cricket outside your window? I have several crickets outside, and they've decided that they want to get their bang on. Awesome. I, yeah, oh, I do awesome. apologize. That's nice. Live That's a nice live. Uh, sound. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going with version 2. As am I, and I'll tell you why. Because you're a suck. <laughs> <laughs> I had a housemate once, and... She had recently discovered my action figure fetish, and she was going through all of the action figures, and she picked out one in particular, and she was like, Phew, this guy's handsome. And it was Hawk. It was 25th anniversary, I think it was Wave 9, the first classic Hawk, or V2 Hawk, done up in the no-ring style construction. And yes, it's a bloody good head sculpt. I like the grayed hair. There's a lot that it does right. Okay, he has very limited elbow mobility but then again he's a command figure what's he supposed to do arm wrestle no yeah exactly not sergeant slaughter damn it but there's enough wrong with that figure i mean his pants are really tight (laughs) (laughs) i find that problematic you know these are combat pants they shouldn't be fitted uh, as, as fitted as that yeah his jacket has glued on portions that don't sit flush i'm talking about the the shoulder pauldrons 
and the holster, which kind of, I don't know, it kind of rides up a bit. The collar is also a separate piece. Um, so there are things that bug me about it, but definitely a notable mention. That figure found its kind of ultimate expression in Pursuit of Cobra, where you have Action Jackson lead from the front kind of Hawk, an awesome figure, but then they take the aging of Hawk in the wrong direction. He's much younger. And that face sculpt doesn't really lend itself well when you don't gray his hair slightly because then he looks like some kind of punk kid. And mm. Hawk needs to have some authority, and that comes from the fact that he looks slightly older, which is why I think your pick, Paul, uh, kind of wins in that regard. He definitely looks a little bit more seasoned, uh, mm. albeit um, self-tanned. <clears throat> <laughs> Um, so I'm going to go with version 2 once again I mean this definitive sculpt section is a double edged sword because the reason we're contributors to this podcast and this entire project is because we have nostalgia and subjective stories to tell about these figures and let me tell you folks when I discovered the internet and I discovered that I could buy G.I. Joe toys online the first thing I ordered was Hawk, version 2. This was yeah. the linchpin of my collection. I needed this figure, and I needed him now. Not only did I need him, but I needed a Tomahawk. So they were the first things that I ever ordered, and you can't fight that kind of persuasion. So whether it's a highly subjective reasoning, because I just love that figure, or the fact that I felt it so important that it outranked, outstripped every other figure that I could have ordered at that point. I mean, I didn't have a version 1 Destro or Cobra Commander. I didn't have version 1 Snake Eyes, version 2 Snake Eyes, Storm Shadow, any of those classic figures. I didn't have a Baroness. I didn't have a Lady J or a Scarlet. I wanted Hawk. Mm. And that Hawk. So, you can't fight it. Also, when you're watching miniseries like Arise, Serpento Arise, which is the Hawk that you're seeing on your screen? That Hawk. That so, Hawk version two. fugly helmet aside, that's the Hawk that I call home. The allure of Hawk is real. He's not a character that, like you were saying, that just immediately jumps out at you as this um, great character that you want, but somehow you definitely feel that you need a Hawk in your life. It's funny that you mentioned that the, one of the first Joes you bought online was Hawk, because one of the first Joes I bought online was also Hawk. The 25th anniversary Hawk, that is. No, Paul. Uh, not yes. one of the first things I bought one of it the, was the first. Yes, That's the no, significance. I, okay, Paul, but I'm you just buy saying, a lot of things. You buy a lot yes, of things, I know. okay? This was in my second online purchase ever, okay? Um, <laughs> well, my second online G.I. Joe local purchase, etc., etc. But I also felt the need to have a Hawk, and it was definitely spurred on by the cartoon. And the version 2 does have that appeal. And it's pants are baggy. <laughs> it's pants are baggy, ruh, ruh, ruh. <laughs> the thing with the Hawk is you can actually see different types of eras coming through the design of Hawk. Version 2 seems to have a sort of a stone quality, but an optimism. If you look at the face sculpt, he's still kind of, you know, he's kind of wide-eyed. He's got a, a, a sort of happier look, as you're mentioning. But you do get the, yeah, he's stone. And then uh, version 3, uh, you got the jetpack Hawk, and he's like smiling. He's like, G.I. Joe was there. You know, he's This got is so back. much fun. This is so much fun. I love this shirt. We like we the best ever. Even in the Taxan game when he's delivering this hectic news about Cobra, he's all like, Hey guys, so Cobra's gone out and done a whole bunch of bad shit. <laughs> you know? Um and then you get oh. version <laughs> So that's that's how you interpret that text, huh? Yeah. 
<laughs> no, I mean, obviously, I'd be a bit more serious about it, but I mean, he does seem a lot more kind of optimistic, like, hey, Cobra's done this shit again, let's go kick their ass. And then version 4 has just got that 90s stamp. You know, action movies in the 90s and early 90s, I mean, it was all about hardcore characters, obviously characters sort of leaning a little towards anti-hero sort of qualities, and now you've got a hawk that talks through his teeth, so he's like, yo, Jones, I need to do something. We need to take out Cobra. And visit the Tan-Can. And yeah, visit the Can-Can. And then uh, somebody's like, why does he wear his sunglasses indoors? And he's like, because I fucking can. <laughs> you know what I mean? To avoid UV radiation. <laughs> I just love that look, man. It's just so fucking badass. Yeah, no, agreed. It yeah. is. It is. They used a flesh tone on his pants. <laughs> And <laughs> not on his flesh. <laughs> <laughs> My pants don't pan. I'm wearing the red boots, so when I kick them up your asshole till it bleeds, <laughs> you don't see it. <laughs> oh, sorry. I don't know. I love that figure. It's 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 got that 90s bulk to it. He clearly really started pushing iron toward his later later years. Yeah, totally, man. I mean, he's he's feeling inadequate in his life, and he feels that, uh, you know, he's surrounded by very strong, very um, powerful sort of male energy around him. He has to make sure that he can feel sort of on the level with these guys, you know? It's not just about a pay grade, you know what I mean? If th- this is not a man who leads from the front or the back. He leads alongside his Joes. <laughs> so he has to look buff. <laughs> yeah, they say after 40 is the best time to like really bulk. So yeah, bam, he's putting on some A-grade muscle. Go Hawk. Booyah. Part 4, Arise, Serpenter, Arise. What are your opening remarks on this this uh, installment of the miniseries? Hmm. For me, two words come up. Three words. Sympathy, the underdog, intrigue. Four words, if you count the definite article. <laughs> yeah. Rob, opening remark. It's really funny. <laughs> there are a lot of really good lines in this one. Well, if you listen to the opening of this podcast, you guys know how I feel. Let's kick it off. The show, as you all know, opens with the capture of Sergeant Slaughter uh, and then the prompted sort of argument between Mindbender and Cobra Commander as Cobra Commander doesn't want the scheme to succeed, so he wants him to kind of dump Sergeant Slaughter and not keep him. And uh, Mindbender's obviously petitioning for keeping Sergeant Slaughter because, you know, he's just got those puppy dog eyes and he followed me home. You check how Mindbender vaults over the, the railing and kind of like does it almost like superhero landing with mm. his cape flowing. Like he, he drops down onto the sort of the, the cargo deck of the plane so that he can close the, uh, the trap door. He's in a villain, he's in a sort of Bond villain, Baron Von Sausage superhero is definitely starting to come through and he is, he's just trying to show everybody he's just badass because he's feeling it right now. You know, he's not scared of Cobra Commander, he doesn't care about Cobra Commander's mercy now, he is, he's there, he is, he's like, he's so ready to get this, he's got everybody behind him, he's got... Um, all of the genetic material he needs, he feels like he's a winner. And um, and that is very true, because we kick through to our favorite hawk. <laughs> well, our favorite, your favorite hawk. Your Cheers. favorite hawks. Having a conversation with the Joes and just saying that, listen, guys, you you done gone fucked up. 
and uh, they're getting reports of all kinds of genetic information that has been stolen from various tombs around the world. And this is all listed, and I'm not going to go into all of it. Um, it's ashes of Caesar, and I don't know the penis of Hannibal. Or, you know, it could be. It's it's many different genetic things. I mean, at this point, if if this episode started off like that, I think we would have expected to see uh, Frankenstein's monster at some point in the episode. But hey, wait, that that might be coming. Mindbender's getting everything together now. He's got all of the stuff. He started his experiment. There is glowing shit. Happening all over the place. Zaymot and Tomax are getting funny. They're doing their thing. Cobra Commander and Scrap Iron are plotting to kind of uh, mess up this whole experiment. And it happens. It, Cobra Commander comes in and, you know, he kind of gives Mindbender a whole bunch of hell, like saying, oh, I'm here to support you, blah, blah, blah. I want to see how it goes. And then he sneaks in some, like, some chemicals into Sergeant Slaughter's genetic, uh, into his genetics, or into his genetic file thing there. Uh, in hopes of obviously, you know, messing up this whole experiment. While this is happening, Slaughter has been captured and sort of semi-interrogated by Zemot and Tomax, who in their greater wisdom have decided to not leave him hanging, but just drop him. you got to know that uh, Slaughter is not somebody you want to leave unrestrained anywhere because he starts finding his way out of there. I think... Uh, if I'm not mistaken, guys, and you might want to jump in here, is this the moment where he uses his thumbnail to unscrew <laughs> a screw in the wall? Tomax and Zaymot detain him, sure, but then they use that uh, that funky device to capture his DNA. And yes. In yesterday's episode of G.I. Joburg, you missed out, Paul, because I, I, I coined the phrase the DNA recovery device for this this piece of machinery that is the unnamed. DRD. The DRD. Yes, they strap it to him, and tell me, guys, what typically happens to the subject that you attach the DRD to? Uh, shit, I I know this. This was um on the last episode. Hold on, I've got. The... Don't they vaporize? Mm, yeah, the remains get completely absorbed into this device. It must have some kind of different effect on living um, organic material because <laughs> Slaughter just collapses to the ground. He, he loses consciousness and hangs in his bonds, uh, which he's then released from by the twins because they're like, <laughs> he'll be out for a week. Nope. Yeah, no fucking way. That man is so juiced. It's not exactly. happening. So juiced. He's got the constitution of a vending machine. Machine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't my line, motherfucker. <laughs> so, I mean, after being conked out by the DRD, he's back on his feet within seconds. Cobra Commander is watching him very intently on the monitor uh, as he attempts to break out using, using his thumbnails to mm -hmm. unscrew the panel with the lock controls. I mean, who puts the lock controls on the inside of a cell anyway? Fascinating. Well, clearly Cobra does. And Rob, do you have anything to, to add to these events? I mean, do you feel that maybe uh, Sergeant Slaughter is on the juice? You, do, do you think he's capable of all of these feats just um, naturally? He's, he's very superhuman. Like, I think we haven't often gotten that in, in previous uh, miniseries <laughs> of G.I. Joe, especially if you consider um, back on the aeroplane, which is, is an incredible aeroplane. It's got a lot of stuff in there. Mindbender has him sent to the uh, the punishment module. <laughs> so like he's, oh, he's the, experienced. That's right. <laughs> Lock him in the punishment module. He says <laughs> in, in that first scene. So like he's he's been subjected to a lot of torture by this point, and he, even after all of that, he's still able to get up and um, you know use his 
well manicured nails to uh, free himself. The struggle is real, man. The struggle is real. <laughs> and then he does a leap and he takes out that poor Cobra Viper with deft efficiency. I mean, that is one hell of a spear tackle. Just it's like one second you got a Cobra Viper and next thing is fuck you, Cobra Viper. Boom it's down. A pretty sweet move because not it only is. does he take out the Viper, but he flips the Viper's rifle into the air and catches it and then charges down the corridor. That is some slick, slick soldiering right there. Oh I mean, yeah. Action choreography par excellence. <laughs> Those animators had a good conception of how, how the flow should work. Hats off to that. So Slaughter's on the loose inside the Cobra Terradrome. Ooh, and uh, nobody's hitting the alarm. Why? Because Cobra wants him to escape. Cobra's hoping that by sabotaging the genetic material and letting the most prime source for that genetic material escape the Cobra facility that they're in, that hopefully Mindbender can get over this little science project of his. I think I perceive the event slightly differently. I think Cobra Commander, who's watching on the monitor as Slaughter's enacting his escape, he says to Scrap Iron, only sound the alarm once Slaughter is out of his cell. And then says, cheers, I'm going down to check on Mindbender's experiment. Because Cobra mm-hmm. Commander has a plan of his own. Now... When Slaughter actually escapes from his cell, Scrap Iron doesn't hit the alarm. He tabs some kind of device that Destro responds to back in the lab. Mm. So there's some foreshadowing there that Scrap Iron is definitely showing some very deeply kept secret uh, allegiance, not to Cobra Commander, not to the Cobra organization, but in fact, to Destro. I mean, did you guys well, perhaps entertain that possibility? It's kind of like what Kujo has been saying throughout you know, the entire miniseries. Scrap Iron is MVP here. He's in it for himself, I think, more than anything else. It, it yeah. doesn't have anything to do with Destro. It has nothing to do with Cobra Commander or Mayimbinder. He just he will do anything that will you know, give him the most reward, as we'll soon see later in the episode. He gets quite a big reward. Anyways, the Joes, meantime, have got a response formulated to this situation. They want to find out, for once and for all, what Cobra's up to. That being their primary mission. Their secondary mission, which mm, I think is masquerading as the primary mission at this point, is the rescue of Sergeant Slaughter from Cobra Island. Specifically, the Cobra Terradrome on Cobra Island. Enter a new toy. (laughs) Boom, Um, boom, 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 boom. Which one is that, Steve? The Cobra Terradrome, duh. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> Yay or nay, Cobra Terradrome. Rob, would you want one? I think we've said before that we do all one point. Okay, well, uh, I'm going to then change my answer, I suppose, to like more like a, a 50-50. Uh, I'm not going to go out of my way to get one. Jim Godfrey, who is a quite a notable uh, fan of G.I. Joburg, uh, who uh, sends us a lot of correspondence regarding our episodes, um, and we, we love you for it, Jim, sent me a message and uh, actually asked me, if I was still going to go forward with my Cobra Terradrome project. And that got me thinking that I should, because I've actually drawn all of these plans for it, and my brain was all stuck in trying to make it out of plastic. And with a lot of what's happening with model kits and with scratch building on my side and what I'm seeing on Instagram, I may actually still do that whole thing. But this time I might use some wood uh, and go for it instead of, you know, sometimes we get stuck in a, a sort of a holding pattern of like, oh, it must be plastic. Oh, it must be this. But now I'm like, fuck it. I actually want to make a Cobra Terradrome. 
So, yes, I would love to have a Cobra Terradrome. I have sort of um, gotten used to the idea that I may never afford one as much as I want one. Um, unless I like win the lottery or whatever, then you guys know you're all getting one. It's not something that I want to go out of my way right now to try and get because, yeesh, 15,000 Rand is a little bit much <laughs> for a toy. It's up to that? Jeez. It's, it's, yeah, uh, so I've seen some specimens go up to that primarily because of the exchange rate. And also because for some reason there is a bit of a spike for G.I. Joe vehicle pricing and G.I. Joe placeit pricing at the moment. I don't know what it is. So You're looking at $1,000... Terradromes. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> Getting back to part four of Arise, Serpenta Arise. The Joes dispatch Team 86, baby. Iceberg, Beachhead, Lifeline, Lift Ticket, Wetsuit and Leatherneck are in there. We don't see much of Mainframe and Dial Tone. I think there is a, an establishing shot or two of Mainframe. He's in there. Uh, yeah. Not so much with dial tone. But anyway, Team 86 is in it to win it. Lowlight is there, bringing up the rear, of course. They dispatch <laughs> them in two or three Tomahawks. I think it's three. Yeah. And off they go. Boom. Hold me down, guys. That is just all flavors of awesome for me. Team 86 is Joe's and Tomahawks. A trio. Rise of, of the Falkyries, man. Big time. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful, man. And they fly in low under the radar. Beachhead even makes a comment saying, oh, we're flying in low enough not to tickle their radar. But he's remarking that something's got uh, Cobra Island spooked anyway. Because why? Well, something went down in the laboratory. Ooh. Rise of the meatball monster. <laughs> Whoops, the experiment is a complete failure thanks to uh, Cobra Commander's uh, interference and sabotage. Mindbender's attempt at creating the Cobra leader results in a giant meatball monster, something that looks like a meatball and a fatal fluffy that have sort of merged together. And this uh, Frankenstein monster-esque creature gets out of his restraints and starts just wreaking havoc. He's like... Bleh. It's quite a horrifying design, I'm not going to lie. Between the teeth, the yellow eyes, the texture, it's kind of demonic. It's got those like yes. tenderly things coming off its head and down its back. Mm -hmm. uh, but it has the kind of gloppy texture that the uh, protoplasm stuff that Mindbender basically is using to fashion his, his ultimate leader. It, it maintains that kind of texture, except... Uh, in a more, um, I suppose, consistent consistency. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's like a it's like an angry sloppy Joe. Meaty. It's a kind of odd, uh, and I know that we've mentioned uh, vehicles and characters and toys and things that have never actually made it uh, as toys. This meat monster is kind of odd because in a 25th anniversary five pack or three pack or whatever that they did um, celebrating the miniseries, uh, the sort of different miniseries, you know, Arise, Serpento, Arise, Pyramid of Darkness, etc. They have this pack for Arise, Serpento, Arise, but instead it's got, uh, what's his face? Montezuma. We get like a Montezuma figurine with that uh, little pack, but that character or that uh, moment is so short-lived in the actual episode and it's so short-lived in the whole miniseries that I'm surprised we didn't get the Abomination, the Meatball Monster. It does play a fairly biggish role in the miniseries because 
it's wreaking havoc for starters. You know that there's going to be some kind of battle between a G.I. Joe and the Meatball Monster. And it's kind of like a cool thing to have the the preform. I mean, if you look at Dragon Ball Z, you have the different incarnations of Frieza and Cell until you get to that final incarnation. I think it's a missed toy opportunity for the 25th anniversary miniseries box sets. But hey, or DVD packs, should I say. But hey, yeah. It would have been quite difficult to sculpt. That's probably why they went with the Montezuma dude. With Montezuma. It's interesting that of all of the things that we could have gotten in that pack, we got a Montezuma. Well, unromantic Steve uh, has the following explanation, and that's pure economics, man. It takes very little plastic to create a skeleton and a whole lot of plastic to create a hulking protoplasm beast. But I saw, like, perhaps... Um, an early conception of what the mega mega vipers were, or not the mega vipers, the um, what were they? The Zombie bio, vipers. The bio vipers. You know the the creatures that the mega marines are designed to combat. Hmm. Oh, I suppose, yeah, yeah. If Cobra Commander was at all interested in assisting Mindbender, uh, they could have created uh, out of the sort of genetic soup an army of these disposable, single-serving beasts. I suppose then the problem would be to try and bring them under control and, and, and target them at G.I. Joe specifically. But, I mean, just imagine, like, if they could mass-produce them, bam, 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 uh, and just set these guys loose. I mean, it took, it took quite a considerable effort to bring down one of these creatures. In fact, one might argue it brought itself down because it started to discombobulate. Uh, I'd like to think that if that thing was at full strength... Not even Slaughter could have brought it down. So this creature breaks loose and starts rip-roaring through the Cobra Pterodrome. And this is something that I'd like to bring attention to. We never see any characters getting killed. But boy, did we see some Crimson Guardsmen getting ragdolled by this Mm. creature. And it's quite brutal. Their bodies are flailing around, being thrown down staircases, being tossed against walls. Uh, It's hell of a violent you don't see any bloodshed, but you can believe these guys are being pretty badly brutalized inside their uniforms and, and perhaps even being killed. I mean, I'm going to extrapolate that when you see a body uh, ragdolling through the air and getting tossed and you know, completely lifeless, that his spine's been severed or mm. badly damaged. I mean, like, and that combined with the fact that they're giving some pretty spine-chilling screams, some blood-curdling screams throughout this sequence it makes for yeah as i say before like i was i was kind of on edge watching this episode it did affect me in in ways that i wasn't really really anticipating yeah you don't have to go much further than a a friday the 13th movie to to get the extent of what's happening to some of the uh the vipers and crimson guardsmen um in this episode you can directly compare it because i was watching friday the 13th the other day and he throws some poor girl out of the window and I mean, she hits a car, and she's broken. I mean, she's completely dead, and she didn't even go as far as, say, a Crimson Guardsman did. But they were both flung with the same sort of ferocity. I want to know what the Joes are up to at this point. Yeah, we get to see the Dreadnoughts, and um, they're playing cards. The Tomahawk comes in over Cobra Island, and then there's this cool sequence where the Dreadnoughts are attacking the Tomahawks as they fly across the, the landscape of... In those Cobra goddamn Island. swamp fires. 
Well, they put up a pretty good fight. Um, I would say, they yeah. Managed to take out, I mean, you know, the main tomahawk with Beechett and his team on. And the, uh, the skin changing, uh, iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, iceberg, you. It's you. a great sequence. I mean, anything involving a tomahawk already has my attentions. But like the whole kind of sliding back the tomahawk's, uh, door, which sadly the toy doesn't have, and sort of shooting out of the, out of the sides. I mean, at one point it's beachhead and mainframe, and another point it's beachhead and iceberg. Uh, I think maybe even beachhead and leatherneck have a combination there. But the tomahawk's getting shot to pieces, like lift tickets up front, and the, you can see the glass shattering and like cracks appearing and holes appearing. Oh, man, it's great. Beachhead's complaining, like, you know, stop, stop moving around so much, fly straight so we can hit the dreadnoughts. And then lift tickets like, if I fly straight, they're going to hit us. So it's, it's a panicked exchange. The action is all there. And then the coup de grace is delivered by none other than Monkey Wrench, who's in the surviving uh, swamp fire, who's piloting it, because he's an ace pilot, of course, who's afraid of spiders. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he lights up an explosive and says, you might find this depressing. <laughs> line anyway he lets this uh, bomb go and it hits the tomahawk miraculously taking out its front rotor blades so the thing is basically flying under power of its rear blades which i mean it's impossible really um the thing would spin out of control but lift ticket being the excellent and very lucky pilot he is manages to pilot this thing down to the ground where Teams of vipers and stuns rush to intercept the wreckage. Of course, Slaughter, who's making good his escape at this point, catches wind of the troop movements and starts systematically taking out each and every one of them. Oh, yeah, old, old Slaughter, yeah, he employs some very cool Rambo tactics um, on those poor Aussie vipers. <laughs> you guys noticed that? Um, oh, yeah, they've got yeah, some he... colorful accents. Yeah, he sets up a, a cool little booby trap. I knew Stephen would notice the Australian accent. But uh, he sets up some cool booby traps um, that, yeah, I mean, I feel bad for that Viper too because I know that in the cartoon we saw the PG version of that, but that Viper's dead, dude. dude <laughs> He's broken. He, okay, he, he swipes the last Viper from the platoon and takes him out, then rushes ahead of the rest to set up this sort of, like, tree swipe. I mean, he, he takes a, a massive tree kind of bends it backwards and takes out a few more the stun which is leading the charge pulls up to something horrific and once again we see this blood curdling close-up reaction shot of a faceless motor viper who's just screaming and i'm sure we work out at that point that he's come face to face with this creation this with the meatball monster <laughs> the meatball monster the joes managed to marshal themselves and they try and make an assault on the Terradrome. But being as um, outnumbered as they are, they use a rather unique diversionary tactic. Yeah, no, this was a cool scene um, with Lifeline. So obviously he's, you, you've established him to be a pacifist, um, and they need some way to get in there. So you should literally send him to go and talk to these guys, which is obviously a diversion. <laughs> but he hasn't it's been told. It's a big move. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then afterwards he's like, why didn't you tell me you were using me as a diversion? And then he's like, no, then you wouldn't have done it. But it's like, what what was Lifeline expecting? You know, once again, joining, um, he's in a military organization group being a decoy for violence. Mm, I'd like to think he would be smarter than that and realize, yeah, okay, I'm going to play this role. I'm not going to like it, but this is a means to an end and we need to complete our objective. No, I don't think so, though. I mean, he won't even help fix a helicopter because it's it's a tool of violence. Um, he really is as naive as as, as he's been written. At least this person. Vegan, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least uh, Beachhead uh, has a sense of humor about it. He's like, well, why don't you go ask them if you can use their phone? <laughs> Hi, guys. Um, we crash landed a ways back, and uh, I just like to ca- call my base. <laughs> like, that's the kind of tone that he uses. It's a uh, I, I'd like to think it's an act, but you're probably right. He's probably being completely sincere, which really undermines the integrity of that character. But anyway, yeah, it's humorous. In an alternate reality, one might find uh, Lifeline uh, asking to use a telephone and then ending up in uh, a garter belt and um, very uh, tight stockings and singing Sweet Transvestite. <laughs> or should I say... Um, Helping a, a certain doctor get back to Mars, but you know, ultimately being foiled. So it's just he does remind me of Brad from Rocky Horror. Or, yeah, he totally. It's such a naive thing to do. He's like, oh, can I can I use your phone? I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> this guy is such a gimp. Jesus. Sorry. You're wet. <laughs> That's a very good riff raff laugh there, boy. <laughs> This next part is is my second favorite passage in the episode. Slaughter comes face to face with the meatball monster. Mm-hmm. Super slam. Big time. His coup de gras is a wrestling move. And as I say before, I'd like to think that this monster could have taken Slaughter, except it was starting to slow down. It was starting to lose its integrity and ultimately becomes a puddle on the floor. Which yeah. the Crimson Twins witness, and they're like, hmm, the jig is up, Slaughter, come with us. <laughs> Slaughter takes the goo that was this monster and throws it in their faces. Terrific. But then he's confronted by Scrap Iron and Destro, and ultimately surrounded by a team of Vipers, to the point where he, even the Sarge throws in the towel. Uh-huh. But only after beating up <laughs> this... Monster with the line, you fight like you look. Ugly, but sloppy. Real, real sloppy. Nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's a great line and uh, something that is part and parcel with Sergeant Slaughter and something I actually feel adds to the G.I. Joe Sunbow mythos. Uh, aside from the many crazy lines and crazy things that come out of the show, frozen fudgy bars and... Cobra and other, you know, fantastic remarks that are made. We've got uh, things from Sergeant Slaughter uh, for the next few episodes and in the movie. And I got to say, I use some of these lines when I instruct in the Kung Fu class with the kids. And they love it because it has the right amount of kind of like scary badassery, but it's also kind of funny at the same time. So they know that I'm not being like super serious. I'm not trying to like kill them or anything. Jeez, but I'm like, I wish I could be a fly on the wall when you say the word. Itty bitty ditty bag. 
I've done it to the kids. I tell them if they don't do their sit-ups, I'm going to put them in a, a ditty bag, an itty, ditty, bitty bag. And they laugh. They're like, what's that? I'm like, it's a really small bag. Do your push-ups. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You're a cruel taskmaster, you. I am. And I'm going to use that. You fight like you look ugly but sloppy if I see them sparring funny. I'm going to do that. Yeah, totally. Thank you, Sergeant Slaughter, for providing some of the best lines an instructor could have. After this big battle with this fucking meatball monster, Slaughter proceeds to make his escape only to trip on Destro's foot (laughs) and be slaughtered by it. Nice. Yeah, yeah, pun intended. No pun is a good pun. What the hell, dude? I mean, was he so wasted from the fight? I mean, mind you, he's been pulling Rambo tactics the whole time, so maybe the guy's broken. I don't know. But this is Sergeant Slaughter, dude. Broken and in need of a manicure. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's no way he's getting out now. He's broken his nails now, you know? <laughs> he gets returned to the laboratory. This time, they're not mucking around. They're going to get a nice, live, and fresh sample of DNA from him. So they chain him up to this kind of electric shackle, it's basically shackles that have a current passed through them. And when they switch it on and off, there's this terrific, like, jump cut or, like, a flash of, like, abstract shapes. I mean, I feel like we've, we've – if you freeze frame it, you'll see this very cool, like, 80s, like, wallpaper design. Yeah. Do, you guys, do you guys remember that? Sort of a white mm. flash with, like – it was very quick. It was just, like, fractal shapes, fractal shapes, vagina, fractal shapes, fractal shapes. It was crazy. They slipped a vagina in there? No, they didn't. I'm just fucking with you guys. But it's a very fight club thing of them to do if they did it. Oh, yeah. So. Every time you're looking at the Cobra sigil. Mm. Vagina. I'm never going to unsee that now. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget to work the clit. <laughs> clit commander. Ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> now... This is where the turning point, I think, of the entire miniseries occurs. Cobra Commander's been hanging back and kind of biding his time, knowing that he will be able to undo Dr. Mindbender's plan because he has agents in strategic places and himself ready to do the unspeakable and completely screw up this, this last best attempt at uh, creating a Cobra leader, a competent Cobra leader that could take them to victory. And Cobra's about to poison the well again, so to speak, when he gets double-crossed by Scrap Iron. Now, Scrap Iron's been promised by Dr. Mindbender a million gold serpentines. How much do you suppose that is in, like, dollar terms? Well, I suppose, I mean, if they're like Kruger Rands, there's probably a lot of money. I mean, it's gold coins. Sure. I mean, they can print uh, gold asshole teens on there for their kids' gold. So it's probably gold value. <laughs> I don't collect coins. I collect toys. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's money. It's, it's real money. I mean, like, if the whole world falls apart and there's still some kind of economy left, gold is what's going to get you stuff. So, so Cobra Commander's got a vial of... Well, he used a virus the last time to poison Sergeant Slaughter's DNA sample, thus creating the meatball monster. And this time, presumably, he's about to do the same thing, but he's apprehended by Scrap Iron and made to watch the creation of the Cobra Emperor from the sidelines. However, he is within earshot of Sergeant Slaughter and proposes an uneasy alliance 
If I switch off the power to the chains, will you stop them for me? Says something like that. Uh, I know we haven't seen eye to eye. And Slaughter agrees. But, man, he is just too virtuous for his own good. I would have loved to rewrite that scene uh, as such that he breaks free of his chains. And before he goes about stopping the rest of the Cobras, he takes Cobra Commander and smashes his head into the wall. Bang. But then he wouldn't be the ultimate hero. <sighs> like he I stands say, by his word. too virtuous. <laughs> it's like, this is the Cobra Commander. This is the numero uno. This is like, this is public enemy number one. He's not getting off scot-free. Bang! <laughs> anyway, that's how I would have scripted it. Slaughter goes about stomping all of the Cobras, starting with the Crimson Twins. And I dig it. I mean, they, they do this, this simultaneous fly kick, both of them, into his chest. Bang! That puts him on the floor. But before long, he's smashing their noses together, which is a hell of a satisfying shot. I don't know. For me personally, the twins never really landed as like cool characters that I admired or liked. So seeing them getting face planted into each other brought me mucho satisfaction. Yeah, you hate the twins. I actually find the twins to be quite wicked in this miniseries. Uh, <laughs> wicked in the sense that they're not as goofy as they usually are. And when they are goofy, there's still this hint of menace to them that I, I feel quite convinced by. I definitely I feel bad for Cobra Commander as this uh, miniseries goes on because I just sympathize with the dude, you know? All of his uh, people, people he thinks are close to him, are starting to, like, fuck him over, even his uh, benefactors. I love his line when he discovers that Mindbender is going to use Sergeant Slaughter's DNA. He's like, Excellent! So the new Cobra leader will have a built-in flair for betrayal. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, maybe you should have thought of that one, Mindbender. Anyway, so Mindbender makes the Cobra Emperor without Slaughter's DNA. Yeah, because it gets ruined. And at this point, Destro also, once again, because throughout the episode, and I think through the previous couple of episodes, he keeps asking these serious questions about the cloning process. Like, what will happen if, you know, we don't include this DNA or this one? He's asking these serious questions about a cloning process that came to Mindbender in a dream. A fucking yeah. dream. I mean, what is Mindbender supposed to know about this? He's like, yeah. well, I, I dreamed it. Uh, this is how it's supposed to go in the dream, so I don't know how it's really <laughs> supposed to go. They're all, they're all putting all their hopes on a dream. Yeah. It's, Very true. It's insane. But of course, like now, it seems like this, this process isn't working. Mindbender is like shouting, rise, my commander, arise. And a Cobra Commander is like, you failed again, Fender Bender. <laughs> <laughs> and how cool is like, that? <laughs> it's awesome. And then Mindbender is like, I don't understand. And Sergeant Slaughter says, you understand this, mind bungler? <laughs> <laughs> Bang. Of course, it's too late. There's a flash of mm. lightning. The entire building shakes, in fact. The Joes are like, hey, what was that? And in a blinding cascade of, I think it's like green light, this ragged figure arises off the table. And like, it seems almost like Mumra transforming. Because he goes from this, I don't know, he's, he's draped in rags, and then you see this close-up of his face. 
and he's yeah, got teeth yeah. that have fangs, and all of a sudden there's a living, breathing being. You hear the voice coming out of him. Those who fear me, follow me. Those who oppose me will die. This I command. <laughs> Spectacular. It's brilliant. He opens with his line. He does. And, and that was we... part four. My goodness. And there we go. All of that intrigue and craziness and rooting for the underdog has now culminated to a cliffhanger. Mm. Mm. And it's a very cool cliffhanger. It's it's finally a cliffhanger that isn't necessarily just, oh, are they going to survive this this new, you know, like mortal danger? It's like they've created this thing. What is it going to do now? Exactly. Previous miniseries have said to us that anything that Cobra makes or Cobra creates or Cobra does and brings out to the world or uh, even previous episodes have said to us that something comes up, it causes a lot of damage, but then ultimately G.I. Joe takes care of it and then it's gone. But we know better, folks. We know that Serpentor becomes kind of a mainstay, uh, at least for a good long while. It's not like he's going to be thwarted in just one episode. So... um we are actually witnessing the birth of a full-on new character, a new villain, something that's going to be part of G.I. Joe lore for years to come. And at this point, without a sitting in front of your TV on a Saturday morning with your cereal and your action figures, you don't know this. You don't know that Serpento is going to be some kind of big deal. There's a lot of things that are coming after this cliffhanger. There's, uh, you know, there's, there's battles, there's... There's Cobra backstabbery and everything happening, or that's going to happen, but it's going to extend further than this miniseries, but nobody knows. And that in itself is a very cool thing. It's very cool to see the series actually do something like that, although ultimately it did kind of fail them because of the movie and all that, but it shouldn't have. I think it was a very brave move for the Sunbow team. I think absolutely. I mean, you've got this fi the final I introduction of this character, uh, it is the culmination of Cobra's efforts up until this point. In many respects, Cobra has won. This is their victory. It's like we beat the Joes. We did this thing that we planned out to do. We ticked that box. It's come to fruition. And now the question that we all are asking is, so what's he going to do? What's his next move? The new leader of Cobra, they created him in a laboratory and like, he he just has this awesome power at his disposal. Like, this episode poses more questions than any previous episode I've ever encountered. Because all of a sudden, a new possibility extends out before us. Exactly. Rob? Yeah, highs and lows. <laughs> Rob wants to hit some highs and lows. I'm going to take the first swing with a low point. Oh. We've got a lot of infighting among the Cobra hierarchy. We've got a, a previously unimportant character in the form of Scrap Iron becoming what Cujo, I'm sure, would call an MVP, or those of you who are not down with the lingo, a most valued player. And this, unfortunately, uh, completely ignores one of my favorite members of the Cobra hierarchy, and that's the Baroness. What the hell is she doing throughout all this time? Sunbathing. It, it's completely boys' club. And yeah. I'm, I'm no feminist, but like... It seems like a very chauvinist move that it's all the boys clubbing together to create this this new leader who is, 
you know, the ultimate expression of macho masculinity. Well, they're they're mainly featuring all the new characters. I mean, you can't not have Destro there. I mean, as as a mainstay, because I mean, he was always kind of Cobra Commander's right hand man. But at this point, you are just showing off all the new characters that have been in there. I mean, the Baroness has been in the series, but you know, it's obviously not featured um, as much. I always thought of Baroness as the go-between. She is Cobra Commander's right-hand woman. Well, I think you're bringing that what from the comic books, though. I mean, I don't think that's established in the cartoons, is it? Uh, it's just a pity. I mean, I, I don't miss Major Blood as much, but I certainly do miss the intrigue that a female Cobra member of the, the upper echelons brings. And where would her allegiances be in this situation? Yeah, that's true, because... Um... You know, she's always playing Cobra Commander and Destro off against each other. Even in some regard in the cartoon, although she is more Destro-centric, and she also has her own thing, but now with somebody like Serpentor involved, and Cobra Commander still running around, unlike in the comic book, where Cobra Commander was sort of eliminated, and then we had um, the, the Fred in the Cobra suit. She had an agenda. She could support Fred. She could support that side of it. And then secretly, um, you know, support, or she could secretly support that and then openly support the Pentor. You try to bring that into a cartoon, and I think it's just too much for kids to get in their heads. I also think Sunbow wanted to be careful and try not to show a, a female character as being that deceptive and that kind of dishonest. You know, because, uh, you know, you, you, you never know. You know, cartoons were raising children back then. You had to be careful, you know. Moving on to my high point, there are a few, but I'd like to individuate two. I love action involving the Tomahawk. I'm sure you could have all guessed that. So seeing Team 86 firing out of the cargo doors of the Tomahawks, um, that's always going to get two thumbs up from this guy. But our first establishing shots of the Joes in this episode are something that... I really enjoy seeing it's a downbeat G.I. Joe team that are licking their wounds. You have an establishing shot of a flight of conquests going overhead and flying back to base. They start really close up and you see bullet holes stitched across the nose. Mm. And then they fly into the background and their landing gear lowers and they sort of fly off, off, off screen. You see an ore striker pulling in and it is a complete wreck. I mean, the, the wheels are completely deflated and destroyed. It's sort of like basically riding in on its rims. <laughs> Whoever's nursing it back to base is really like trying to coax whatever he can out of that engine. And there's a very kind of earnest debriefing between Hawk and Duke and Beachhead. And they're just like... This is not going well at all. We've got all these reports of tombs that Cobra hit that we didn't even know about. Like, we've put all our efforts into defending this sort of very closed list, and we've been defeated at every turn, and now there are all these additional things that we've missed. We are really, really on a losing streak right now. And it's ironic, because <laughs> it seemed like Cobra didn't need Serpentor to defeat G.I. Joe at all these uh critical junctures. One brings into question the validity of needing Serpentor in the first place. Cobra's got G.I. Joe on the ropes. By simply rallying behind a focused goal, like gathering all these DNA samples, Cobra has managed to do something completely by accident, and that is defeat G.I. Joe. I swear, all they needed to do was to rally their forces and have one all-out assault on the weakened G.I. Joe team 
back at the headquarters, and bam, open and shut the entire. Yeah, they could have waxed it. They could have done it. <laughs> they were too caught up in this convoluted plot to create a new leader that they didn't even realize that they had G.I. Joe on the ropes. So that sequence is terrific. And it culminates in Team 86 running to their choppers, taking off, and you've got a lone shot of Hawk standing outside the base saying, good luck and Godspeed. Yeah, that's my point right there. Bam. Robert Lee, top that. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think I can. Um, that's, you know, that's very well, well reasoned. What I like overall is this kind of Cobra Commander's Probably my high point is Cobra Commander's kind of continuous, like he's always trying to get back in charge, but like he just can't prove himself. Yeah. And also the fact that he has so many cool lines, like failed again, fender bender, what a mind boggling brainstorm, mind bender. And probably my favorite is, um, after he's kind of, he's locked them into that lab just after the monster's been created. He's like, yes, now it's going to take them out, but he fails again. <laughs> and then Desto comes out and he's like, Why didn't you shoot it? You have a gun on your hip right there. And Cobra Command is like, Tough luck, Mindbender. That runaway pile of putrid protoplasm is your problem, not mine. <laughs> it's like, he's just so focused on trying to, like, like not help these guys and undermine mm. them that he still gets it wrong, though. Yeah. It's a great shot. I can't... You've got a shot, like, real close up on, on the fact that Cobra Commander is packing a pistol. Yeah. Which leads me to ask, like, is he the only Cobra that's packing any kind of heat? Like, no one else yeah, well, is carrying this after that. Yeah, no one else in the entire lab. But doesn't Destro always have those, like, missiles on him? Oh, yeah. I'd be yeah. curious. I mean, I didn't look very closely, you know, at his wrist and, to notice. But yeah, I just I just like the, the follow-through of Cobra Commander. Like, he's... And he's so blind that he doesn't realize the scrap iron, scrap iron was never working for him. He was always in it for himself. I suppose... Mm. He's My so... loyal confidant. <laughs> yeah, he's just, he's just a friend. <laughs> <laughs> he just wants a little buddy, you know. Um, but he's just so self-centered as well that he just doesn't see why he keeps failing. And I, I, I don't know, I find that very complex. Probably my low point of this, once again, it has to do with words. Mindbender has names for everything that he's using to create Serpentor. From the protoplasm armature, which is essentially just, you know, like a container that he's transporting the protoplasm in, to yeah. probably the most ridiculous named thing ever, the containment shroud, which is a sheet. It's the sheet he places on the body, you know, to kind of to mold it into the shape of a body. It's like, what is know, it, Foster Paris? <laughs> <You know. laughs> yeah. I just couldn't accept that. It's so stupid. It's a containment shroud. It's a sheet. Just call it what it is, dude. Stop being, you know, so highfalutin. Yeah, but know. but he doesn't name the the freaking genetic material, uh, the DRD. Yeah, the D- yeah, the DRD. He doesn't name that. Like that has no name. It's just yeah. here's a device that will, you know, like consume the entirely dead bodies. It's just, you know, there's no consistency, mind bender. Come on. It's neat that those devices are shown to kind of lock in place on top of each of the, uh, the sort of DNA uh, vials or. Yeah, it's beacons. a nice detail. Mm. I do like that. Screw into place, which is kind of cool. But yeah, no, it's it's a bit highfalutin. But he's a doctor, of course, and they they like to complicate <laughs> things, jargon. That's true. Poorly so highs Paul, and lows, bro. 
I'm going to start my, with my low just so that I can end off on a, on a high note. My major low is just what they're doing kind of seems superfluous. And I'm talking, of course, about Cobra because, uh, once again, Steve mentioned it and Rob's also kind of mentioned it where, uh, the Joes are on the ropes already. And whether it's by happenstance, you know, it's kind of serendipitous that it's just all fallen into place like that or whether it's due to the machinations of Cobra Commander. And I, I can't believe, at least from the, from the source material, that this is due to Cobra Commander's sort of scheming and plotting and, and strategy. Because the whole show has, the whole episode has had intense surveillance conducted by Cobra Commander. He, he's been surveilling the Joes and he manages to infiltrate Joe HQ with the bats. And, you know, he manages to, to get in some little jabs here and there. And, in a lot of those situations, as as you can actually witness, Cobra would have taken those battles. So it's not that Cobra Commander was actually inept in this situation. Yeah, perhaps he retreated a, a little too quickly. But even then, it just seemed like more of a MacGuffin, as these shows need. So I do feel that it's actually a very much a tale about a lack of faith. And I sometimes feel that I feel that that could have been pushed through a little bit better. You know, it seems that this show is actually about a lack of faith, like. When the people you trust around you or when you all believe in something and you're working hard towards getting that and the people that are working with you start losing faith, um, it makes getting to that goal a lot harder to do because then people start making plans. And I, I speak from experience because I've been in a company where the wheels started coming off and people already started thinking, okay, cool. Hey, buddy, do you want to come work with me? We're going to do some stuff or, you know, we need to start looking after each other and whatever. And this happens. I mean, this is what happens in businesses every day and and in life every day, in school every day. So I kind of feel bad for old Cobra Commander, you know, that nobody can see the, the light anymore. And he's winning. It's like if anybody should be rallying behind him, now is the time, and they don't. And they don't really show that. And I, I feel that that's a bit of a downer because you're not necessarily as a viewer feeling the importance of of the situation, even though now we segue into my, my high point. The struggle of Cobra Commander is a definite high point. Because we do feel for Cobra Commander, we do feel he's an underdog. And it's kind of weird because as viewers, and at least I know this is how I felt when I watched it the first time uh, many years ago, or a few years ago, when I got the box, it was, oh, wow, like, I feel really bad. I don't want Cobra Commander to be usurped. I want him to be the, the leader of Cobra. I want him to thwart Mindbender's plans. I want him to, to give the rest of his cadre a, a what for. And, and that was cool. I liked, I enjoyed rallying behind him as much as I enjoyed rallying behind him in um, in the movie. But in the movie, they kind of make him so despicable that you're actually like, holy shit, Galobulus just killed a man. You know? <laughs> that. And then also, the um, yeah, the, the, tom the Tomahawks coming in and doing their thing, that is great. That, that kind of stuff's always great to watch. And also, Sergeant Slaughter's escape. I know it seems it's a ridiculous es escape, but it's cool in that, it's not completely ridiculous. I mean, the guy could have taken off his belt buckle, actually, and tried to use that as a screwdriver. You know, let's be fair. Other than that, you know, it's really cool. He gets out. He takes that Viper down. He grabs that Viper's gun. He goes. You know, when he's finally in the forest, he's setting up booby traps. And, you know, we're seeing some cool, like, Hollywood soldier-esque moments. And I enjoyed that. I thought that was great. Say nothing about the, the, the way he mops the floor with the Cobra hierarchy at the end. I mean, he's pummeling yeah. everyone. He's like, <laughs> Scrap Iron takes a swing at him with a with like a, a lead pipe or something. <laughs> mm. Slaughter's like, you tended my hat! <laughs> he punches him out, and then he's like, sort of padding out his hat with his fist. 
and he's yeah. mash- mashing Destro's head into the panel. Of I love that. Sorry, Mindbender, you. Sorry, Mindbender, you're going to have to activate the power yourself. Like, I <laughs> he's just banging his head. He's just like braining him. Bang. I bang. know. I know. There's a lot of of Sergeant Slaughter worship in this miniseries, but I'm on board, man. Totally. I think he's great. And I mean, up until this point, I uh, and like as I said earlier in the show, I really enjoy Slaughter's lines. And the Sergeant Slaughter fun train is a good train to be on um, in this miniseries, totally. So rate it, rate it. I'm going to actually give this episode a four down payments. Mm. If we're still using down payments. I think we'll <laughs> use meatballs. Four meatballs. It gets, <laughs> it gets, it gets four genetic materials <laughs> from Paul. Not all five. I think that is needed for the thing. Man, this is such a missed out toy opportunity. Sorry, man. They could have totally made a whole <laughs> thing here with the genetic materials and they could Get have really it. done some shit. Get anyway, I, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. Five meatballs from me. Sorry, guys. Wow. I've got to be that guy. I mean, yeah, I can't fault this episode. I really enjoyed it. You know, I would have liked to see Baroness, but that goes without saying. Everything else, dead on. I'm on board. This is this is going great. I I'm I'm gonna give it three. I mean I really enjoyed it overall. Um, but it's not the perfect episode for me. Giving it the average score of four meatballs. Excellent. It is now tied for our most highest rated episode, which previously was uh, part five of Revenge of Cobra. It's also received four. Ooh. Now it's anybody's guess. If the final part of Arise, Serpent, or Arise can become our favorite episode or not. Hmm. Perhaps I'm heaping a bit too much pressure on it. But listeners, you've come with us this far. Come with us a little bit further. Because tomorrow we conclude the G.I. Joe Sunbow Season 2 opener miniseries. Arise, Serpent, Arise. It's been real. Good luck. And Godspeed. From the mouth of Dr. Mindbender, my cup thoroughly runneth over. Thank you, guys. This has been awesome. See you in episode five. Did you say thoroughly run, runneth over? Thoroughly, that, that is what I heard him say. I even did a triple take to make sure that is what I'm hearing. And I can't say I know what the key is actually trying to say. But I just thought it would be great for our listeners to share in it. Maybe, maybe it's from Shakespeare. Maybe this whole miniseries is meant to have some kind of Shakespearean quality. Hamlet, mm. perhaps. Othello, even. I don't know. Yeah, but it you must know. be the original Klingon. <laughs> it must be the original Klingon, yes. <laughs> you failed again, Fender Bender. <laughs> See you guys tomorrow. Line.